Alright, so this evening we will be in Deuteronomy chapters 24, and my hope is that we will sneak into uh, chapter 25. Uh, we will spend most of the evening, I think, talking about uh, Moses' extended commentary on the Eighth Commandment. Uh, but we're going to begin in Deuteronomy chapter 24 in verse 1, uh, finishing up here with the Seventh Commandment. So the Seventh Commandment, of course, is you shall not commit adultery uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18. And we see here in the first four verses... The following, Moses speaking to this second generation of Israelites on the east side of the Jordan River, uh, near the end of his life. Moses says this to Israel. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you. As an inheritance. All right. So, uh, very interesting uh, law here. Uh, let's see. So, uh, a few few things to say. So, the first thing I would say is that um, we saw back in Leviticus twenty one. Uh, verse seven, as we were talking about uh, the holiness of the priests, um, that um, it was mentioned there that the priests uh, were not allowed to marry a divorced woman. And so uh, it was uh, hinted at, even as far back in the Holiness Code of Leviticus, the latter portion of Leviticus, uh, that divorce was a thing uh, in Israel. And so here in Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, we see a couple of different things. We see uh, the process for divorce, and we also see the law regarding uh, divorce. And and the law really is found in verse 4. This idea that if husband number one uh, gives his wife a certificate of divorce, uh, and then she goes off and marries another man, uh, then she is never allowed to return to uh, that original husband. That really is the essence of the law that we're given here in the first few verses of Deuteronomy uh, chapter 24. So, I want to point out a couple of things from the, from the text. So, in verse 1, you see that um, it, there is actually a process here. And the process, as we have been saying over and over again in this study, the process itself uh, is part of the deterrent. So, uh, we know, of course, uh, and I'll get to this uh, in a more extended way, but we know from Matthew 19... And Mark chapter 10, and of course Genesis chapter 1, uh, that this was not God's original design for marriage, uh, this idea that a husband and wife would divorce. And so we see here a couple of things that provide uh, deterrence, or at least are designed to be deterrence, 
uh, here in Deuteronomy 24. So the first one is that there's actually a certificate of divorce that is needed. And so the assumption here is that the man, uh, he cannot simply walk out into the town square and uh, make an announcement with his mouth. Uh, he actually has to go and he has to write down uh, what it is that he finds indecent about his wife. And so that's the first part of the process. And um, I think it's also probably true here, I would agree with the commentaries here, that this idea of the certificate of divorce uh, most likely lends itself to the fact that that certificate uh, would be a formal document that would also have to come uh, to the elders of the city, for example. So there would have to be some sort of public proclamation of this. Um, And then we also see in verse 1, as part of the process, which is also part of the deterrence, is that this man, uh, he has to take this certificate of divorce that has perhaps gone through the elders of the town and he has to put it in the hand of the woman. So he has to look her in the eye uh, and declares that uh, he no longer wants to be her husband and he no longer wants her to be his wife and he has to send her out of his house. And some of the commentaries even note, uh, perhaps from, from some extra biblical Jewish writings, that uh, there would not only be a certificate of divorce, but this idea of putting this certificate in her hand would mean that she would also have to be compensated uh, by the man in some way uh, for uh, this certificate of divorce that would be monetarily to ensure that she could at least survive for a time before she found uh, another husband. And we see that um, in verse 2. She leaves the first husband's house and she goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife then she cannot return to the former husband. And so even that that aspect of the law itself is also, I believe, serving as a deterrent here. This idea that a man should not make a rash decision. Um, so, you know, oftentimes uh, if there's, let's say, a, a spirited debate between a husband and a wife, for example... And that goes on for a few days, uh, and then and then there's a reconciliation, and so uh, this forbiddance of the wife to return to her husband uh, as part of the law in verse 4, there is also, I believe, serving as a deterrent that a husband should not make a rash decision to put away his wife, especially the wife of his youth, uh, whom he at least at one time loved. So, uh, with all of these deterrents in place, um, I do believe that it's clear from the text that this is not supposed to be a trivial offense. Okay, It's obviously not adultery, right? because adultery is something that is paid for uh, by, uh, by death. Of, of the woman if she would have committed adultery. And in fact, if you go back to Numbers 5, even if she were suspected of adultery, there's a process there in Numbers chapter 5 uh, to see whether or not the woman was in fact guilty of adultery. Uh, nonetheless, I do think this is not something uh, to, to be trivialized. And there were a couple of schools uh, in Jewish history 
um, that uh, disagreed about what the level of the triviality uh, or the, the level of the indecency had to be. Now, some schools, uh, for example, the school of uh, Hillel, if I remember correctly, um, they were willing to allow a man to divorce his wife for something very, very, very small. Something like, uh, even I read in one commentary, uh, bad breath, for example. Um, and then there was another school of Shammai uh, who raised the bar substantially. And so even in Jewish history around the time of Jesus, uh, there were uh, differences of opinion as to what level of indecency would justify, say, the elders of a city to grant the certificate of divorce. And of course, if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 19, um, it is most likely this debate among the teachers in Israel that is the root of the question in the early portion of Matthew chapter 19. So we see in Matthew 19, and it came about that when Jesus had finished these words, the words, of course, in chapter 18, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Verse 3, and some Pharisees came to him, testing him, and saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And so this question would have had uh, in its background uh, the school of Hillel. Right? And so they want to see where Jesus falls, right? Because again, they're trying to trap Jesus, they're testing Jesus, uh, and they're trying to uh, form a, an opinion against Jesus. And so they figure, well, if we ask him this question, then at least we can divide two uh, of the, uh, the great schools of thought here uh, against Jesus. One would be for and one would be against, but either way, he is stuck when we ask him this question. Of course, our Lord Jesus, uh, he is, um, they try to trap him many different times and it turns out that he actually never gets trapped because he always provides the right and profound answer. In verse 4 of Matthew 19, he, Jesus, answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Consequently, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so they think that Jesus is going to go back to Deuteronomy 24 and give some interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24. But in fact, Jesus does not go back to Deuteronomy 24. He goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 and establishes what God established from the very beginning. And so he circumvents the question. Of course, they press him. Verse 7, they, the Pharisees, said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? So they're now going to force him to exegete, as it were, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Verse 8, Jesus says to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this Way And so you can see in verse 7 that the, the Pharisees press on Jesus and they use the word command there and they misquote Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1. Moses did not command any Jewish man to divorce his wife. Jesus correctly interprets Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 by using the word permitted. It is definitely a different Greek word. Permitted 
in verse 8 of Matthew chapter 19, and that is the right interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, but he emphasizes again at the end of verse 8. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And so we see that, um, and we've seen this before, right? We see that, that Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, there's a certain level of permissiveness uh, in the way that he deals with his old covenant people, Israel, right? We saw that previously uh, from Deuteronomy chapter 17 and that the fact that the kings should not multiply wives for themselves and yet God uh, allows David, for example, uh, to have multiple wives. And so we see, again, this level of permissiveness and, and uh, there's probably a much longer conversation to, to be had on that subject again, uh, but we've had that before a little bit and, and I, so I don't want to do that again here. Uh, and it probably has to do with um, Paul talking about in Romans 3, God passing over sins previously committed. Um, so anyway, that, that is uh, Deuteronomy 24, the law about divorce and Jesus' uh, exegesis of it. Of course, he establishes uh, the, the permanency of marriage in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In verse 5, Moses says, When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army, nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year, and shall give happiness to his wife, whom he has taken. And so we saw this uh, a couple of chapters ago in Deuteronomy chapter 20, uh, verse 7. Uh, so this is not a new law, uh, but it here finishes up, at least for now, this, uh, this discussion of the seventh commandment and uh, laws regarding marriage. So, as we move on to verse 6 of Deuteronomy chapter 24, we're going to, for the most part, spend the rest of our time together tonight, uh, talk about Moses' extended commentary on the 8th commandment, except for a couple of verses uh, here later in Deuteronomy 24. So let me pick up in verse 6. No one shall take a hand mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for he would be taking a life in pledge. So here, again, the Eighth Commandment is uh, you shall not steal. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 19. So we're going to talk about um, the extended commentary on you shall not steal. So here in verse 6, we have this idea that if someone takes a hand mill or an upper millstone, it says you would be taking a life in pledge. And so essentially, if someone owes you something, uh, one thing that the Israelites were not allowed to do is they were not allowed to take the means by which they fed their family or uh, produced their livelihood. So this could be a personal millstone or hand mill by which uh, they would be able to um, crush crush grain and, and make bread. Or this could in fact be a, uh, a something, a millstone that produced a livelihood as part of a business on behalf of the Israelite. And so what you're doing here is you're not only taking food and money out of the mouth and hands of an Israelite, but you're also taking away that Israelite's capability to pay back the debt that he owes. And so you are completely hamstringing now your fellow Israelite by taking this means by which perhaps the Israelite is making money and can pay back his debt. And so Israelites are not supposed to do that. Verse 7. If a man is caught kidnapping any of his countrymen of the sons of Israel, and he deals with him violently or sells him, then that thief shall die. So shall you purge the evil from among you. And so here we see man stealing, right? And so kidnapping is a, a heinous offense uh, in Israel, and uh, it is a capital offense punishable by death. 
Now, uh, brief aside, verses 8 and 9. Moses says this, Be careful against an infection of leprosy that you diligently observe and do according to all that the Levitical priests shall teach you, as I have commanded them, so you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. So these two verses, um, I I racked my brain and uh, scoured the commentaries for how these might be a commentary on the Eighth Commandment. And I just can't get there. So it seems to me that Moses uh, throws this in there as um, a, a, an ex- uh, more of a commentary on the fifth commandment, right? To honor your father and mother. If you remember when we talked about that a few sessions ago, uh, honor your father and mother was a, was a shorthand command for uh, honoring authority. And, and if you remember the story back in um, Numbers chapter 12, uh, Miriam was challenging the authority uh, of Moses and uh, ended up with leprosy in that uh, part of the narrative. And those um, those rules that Moses gave to the Levitical priests, uh, for your reference, uh, with regard to if an Israelite gets some sort of skin disease like leprosy, uh, those rules, we discussed those back when we were in Leviticus chapters 13 and 14. So that would be for your reference. Okay, verse 10, back to the 8th commandment. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not enter his house to take his pledge. You shall remain outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep with his pledge. When the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it will be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. Right? And so this idea is that um, when there's a loan made between Israelites, the Israelite who makes the loan should not enter the house of his brother. That is, his brother is the one, the one who is taking out the loan, is the one who decides uh, what the collateral shall be for the payment of the loan. And of course, you know, this is, um, this is a, a, a sign of respect. Um, you should not steal uh, the dignity of your brother, in, in a sense, um, that because you might walk into his house and you might decide that you would like something else that's more valuable uh, as collateral. And, and so God does not give the Israelites the right to do that. And this is uh, uh, evidence of gracious lending practices in Israel, uh, especially among Israelite brothers, right? So, so I would say that uh, God would say to the Israelites, yes, you may loan to your brothers, but you should not lord it over your brothers. And we see that again in verses 12 and 13. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep with his pledge. When the sun goes down, you shall surely return the pledge to him. Right. And so this, uh, if he's a poor man, perhaps the only thing that he owns uh, is his tunic. Uh, and so it would be um, ungracious, at least unkind, um, and worse even, to uh, leave a poor man in his home without a covering as he freezes during the night. And so again, it is okay to loan to your brother, but it is not okay to lord it over your brother. And in any lending situation, the Israelites are commanded and expected to be gracious to one another. Verse 14, You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your or one of your of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he may not cry against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin 
in you. And so here we have uh, not paying uh, a day laborer his day wages is stealing from a worker. Right? He's, he's living hand to mouth. He's living day to day. Uh, he is poor and needy, verse 14. And this would be stealing in order not to give him his payment that he might go into the square and buy uh, uh, his, his, his uh, wheat that he might make bread for himself and for his family. So the wages, remember, wages are owed to a worker. And they must be paid, else the employer is stealing from the employee. And so we see that under the Eighth Commandment as well. And, and uh, James actually quotes this particular verse in James chapter 5, verse 4, um, about not paying a man his wages for the work that is done. And uh, it's, uh, of course, James, James is pounding on the law in his epistle, and uh, he does not take too kindly to someone who violates uh, this particular law in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Verse 16, fathers shall, not put to death for, fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. And so this, this law here, right, it preserves a person's individualism, right? So this would be stealing a father's life, for example, for the sins of his son. And um, so this is, this is an important um, precept in Israel. Uh, for a good example of this, you might uh, go to Second Kings chapter 14, but uh, extremely important uh, that this particular precept preserves the individualism of each of the Israelites uh, as they live their lives. Verse 17, You shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. So there's a little bit of the the, uh, ninth commandment uh, here in verse 17, uh, which we will pick up on the next time we're together, Lord willing, this idea of perverting justice. Uh, But we see again... At the end of verse 17, this idea of taking a widow's garment in pledge, right? Again, that may be uh, the only thing of value that she has. And so to take a widow's garment in pledge would be a form of stealing in Israel, uh, not the least of which stealing uh, would be stealing a widow's dignity as well. And and, And the purpose of this particular law in verse 17 is given in verse 18. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. And so we see, do not pervert justice, do an alien or an orphan. That is, you should be treating others in a manner uh, opposite to the way that you were treated and, and to this second generation of Israelites that your parents were treated in, in uh, Egypt. And so I think this is uh, primarily related to uh, the alien that's mentioned earlier in verse 17. And then verses 19 through 22 of Deuteronomy 24. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the bows again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. And when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. 
So here we have this idea that um, they, they should not be harvesting all the way to the ends of their fields or going back over and picking up the things that they left behind. In essence, this would be the Israelites stealing from the poor. Stealing from the poor. That's how this fits under the Eighth Commandment. This idea, remember, God owns everything in the land. It is not primarily the Israelites' uh, property or even harvest. God owns everything. And God has reserved a certain portion of the things that he allows to grow in the land of Canaan for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. And so this would be stealing from the poor if the Israelites were to be greedy and go back through their fields. And and I just want to emphasize here um, that this... um, it says three times in verses 19, 20, and 21, it shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. And so uh, the aliens and the orphans and the widows uh, are apparently very important uh, to the Lord. And you can see uh, echoes of that in the epistle to J- uh, of James as well in the New Testament as to what true religion is, caring for the orphans and for the widows. And so it's something that we should give thought to Uh, as we are caring for others, caring especially for those who are most needy in our midst. Alright, chapter 25, verse 1. If there's a dispute between men, and they go to court, and the judges decide their case, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, the judge shall then make him lie down and be beaten in his presence with the number of stripes according to his guilt. He may beat him forty times, but no more, lest he beat him with many more stripes than these, and your brother be degraded in your eyes." Okay, and so what we see here uh, is a window into what punishment looked like in Israel that was short of capital punishment. Okay, so this is punishment short of capital punishment. I would note here uh, that there were no jails in Israel. Right? That these payments were to be made upon render, the rendering of justice. You can see that uh, in verse 1. The judges decide their case and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Then it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten. And, and this, this law is probably uh, running in the background of Jesus' discussion in Luke uh, chapter 12 when he's talking about uh, the punishments of the unrighteous. Luke uh, chapter 12 verses 47 and 48. This is something that the Israelites would have seen many times. And um, in verse 3, you can see that the limit uh, was placed uh, at 40, 40 times. Um, And there's a couple of of, uh, comments here. So first of all, I would note that Paul mentions this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, that he had received 39 lashes uh, multiple times. And so Paul was certainly familiar with this particular law as he was on the receiving end of it from the Jews on multiple occasions. Uh, And the reason why 39 uh, is is, uh, listed there by Paul and not 40 um, there's, there's a, a couple of comments in the commentaries about this. Uh, it could be that they would stop at 39 uh, just in case they had miscounted uh, and they did not want to uh, go beyond uh, the law of God. 
and make a mistake and make it 41. Uh, it could also mean that what they were using, uh, the instrument that they were using for the beatings, uh, might have had three prongs on it. And so this would be 13 shots times three prongs. And of course, the 14th shot would take you all the way to 42. Uh, and so um, there's, a, there's a couple of different comments as to, as to why Paul would have received 39 and not the 40. So how does this fit into the Eighth Commandment? Well, it's there at the end of verse 3. You can see, And your brother be degraded in your eyes were he to receive more than 40 lashes. This is justice that does not steal a man's dignity. Justice that does not steal a man's dignity. He certainly, uh, according to justice, uh, is due punishment, uh, but not punishment so as to degrade that Israelite in the sight of the rest of Israel. Verse 4, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. This is such an interesting verse. Um, It's actually... um, quoted twice uh, in the New Testament. It's quoted in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, verse 9. It's also quoted by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. Uh, and so what's the issue here? Uh, the issue is that the muzzle, uh, muzzle being placed on an ox as he's threshing out the grain, which would prevent him from eating while he's working, is in fact stealing from the ox itself. The ox is the one who is working, and so the ox deserves to eat. And so if you muzzle the ox and do not allow him to eat, then you are in fact stealing something from him, his wages that he deserves. Uh, In both cases in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5, Paul uses this verse uh, to justify the support of the uh, pastors and itinerant preachers as Paul was, um, and so he, he looks at this verse and basically argues that those who make their who, who spend their life's work uh, for the for the gospel uh, deserve their wages from the gospel, and the, so he makes that argument a couple of different places in the New Testament. Verse five. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel." But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall declare, Thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And in Israel his name shall be called the house of whom whose sandal is removed. All right. So this is the law of leveret marriage. Right? Again, the key here is that you have an Israelite um, and he dies, verse 5, and has no son. He has no heir. Then the wife of that man, um, who has presumably obviously not given him an heir, right? she is to go to the Israelite's brother and demand that the brother uh, provide 
the, the deceased brother with an heir, with a son. So what's the issue here? The issue in the, with respect to the Eighth Commandment is that, um, that if that man who died without a son, without an heir, right, that man would lose... He would lose the property given to him in Israel because that property would necessarily have gone to his son, his heir. And so, in essence, what's happening here is that the brother who is alive, who is commanded to perform this this act with the dead man's wife, um, if he does not perform this act, he is actually attempting to steal the property and to steal the heritage of his dead brother in Israel. And you can see that um, in verse 6. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. So that property, and again, personal and private property, is an extremely important idea in the Mosaic law. And so it, it, this idea of leveret marriage is here so that a man's name is not blotted out from Israel and that his property, which was granted to him by God, is not stolen from him, but in fact passes to his heir, his son. And so this is extremely important. And we can see that it's extremely important because of what's happening in verses 7 through 10. I mean, this is obviously a serious offense. The brother's wife, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, if the, 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 the deceased brother's wife, right, she has a responsibility uh, because of her husband's honor. That's really important to understand. Because of her deceased husband's honor, she has a responsibility in Israel to demand this from her brother-in-law. And if her brother-in-law refuses uh, for whatever reason, it doesn't matter, she is then to go to the elders, to the gate of the city, to the elders, and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. And so then the elders... Here in verse 8, we see they summon the, the, um, the brother uh, to the city gate. And they speak to him. They plead with him. You can see they're pleading with him because if he persists, verse 8, and says, I do not desire to take her, right? Then we have this other act uh, of shame uh, in the direction of the brother himself where the, the wife is to take his sandal off of his foot and to uh, spit in his face. The New American Standard Version says it may just be spit at his feet. Um, but spit sort of before his face, uh, which for a woman to do is clearly uh, an act of shame uh, directed at the brother here. Uh, and then he gets a name in verse 10. He gets a name, the house of him whose sandal is removed. And so this uh, concept of leveret marriage, it seems uh, obviously distant and foreign uh, to us, but in the context of, of Old Covenant Israel, we see that this raising up of sons, raising up of heirs in an honor-based system where uh, the, the, the primary uh, piece 
uh, that, that a person owned is, is the property that God had given to them in the land of Canaan as a promise, the promise that he made to Abraham. This is an extremely serious deal. And in fact, um, you, there are echoes of this in uh, Ruth chapter 4 as well. You can, if you remember, like to go there in Ruth 4, there's a transaction at the gate of the city where uh, a man's sandal is removed as well. And so um, that is a, a relatively gentle uh, example of this, of a man who chooses not um, to take Ruth as his wife, uh, but uh, that story there with Boaz, uh, still you can see this this um, at the city gate that one of the men takes off his sandal and, and there's a there's a contract made there, and uh, Boaz ends up uh, marrying Ruth the Moabitess. So anyway, uh, very interesting uh, portion here on leveret marriage. All right, finally, verses 11 and 12. If two men, a man and his countrymen, are struggling together and the wife of one comes near to deliver her husband from the hand of the one who is striking him and puts out her hand and seizes his genitals, then you shall cut off her hand. You shall not show pity. So, uh, very interesting uh, law here. Uh, But again, in the context of the Eighth Commandment, uh, what we see here is a a woman uh, who apparently has no shame and she's attempting to steal the dignity of uh, her husband's rival. And uh, again, we see this uh, being an extremely uh, serious offense. Um, You shall cut off her hand. You shall not show pity. And it may very well be that Jesus has this law in his mind uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 30, and elsewhere where he talks about uh, gouging out eyes and, and cutting, cutting off hands. Um, so, that, uh, Matthew 20, I'm sorry, yeah, Matthew, Deuteronomy 24, uh, beginning in verse 6 through uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 12, uh, Moses extended commentary on the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Uh, And uh, Lord willing, again, as we uh, come back and pick up in Deuteronomy 25, uh, we'll see some commentary on uh, the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness.